0: As you see on the screen, the, the title of today's sermon is The Gospel Advancing Church. And so I, I've been obviously thinking about that during the week and through the weekend, and, uh, and our, our family also had some other things going on that had me thinking along a, a different lines this weekend, is we took the plunge and bought our first trampoline. Exactly. Right, Some of you were like, sweet. And I was like, Ugh. that's what the guy at Lowe's told me. I wish you could have seen the cringe on his face. But, but anyways, I got to thinking about the, the sermon, the Gospel Advancing Church, and the, the family trampoline we just bought. And what I realized is there's actually a connection here that I think is really useful for all of us to think about. Now, you, you picture yourself or your kids on the trampoline. How do you get launched up higher out of the trampoline? You've got to go deeper into the trampoline, right? And the deeper into the trampoline you go, the higher up it launches you out, Right? And then you step off the trampoline and you try to jump and you're like, man, I'm a, what I used to tell my dad was, dad, you're a two-sheeter. Two-sheeter means you jump and you can almost slide two pe- sheets of paper under you. <laughs> like that's how we all feel when we step off a trampoline, right? And what in the world does that have to do with the gospel-advancing church? Well, it's this, to be, as a gospel-advancing church, to be launched out with the gospel, you've got to go deeper into the gospel. And the deeper into the gospel you go, the higher you get launched out by the gospel on mission. And when you step out of the gospel, and like, hey, I can just do this on my own. Like, I don't really need to pray that hard about this. I don't need to really prepare myself in this way. I don't need to really meditate that much on the person and work of Christ. Well, you're a two-sheeter at that point. You're not going very far on mission because you've separated yourself from the gospel. You've got to go deeper into the gospel to be launched out by the gospel. And so we'll explore that theme today through Acts 11 and the Gospel Advancing Church and what I want to do is ask a couple of questions of the passage that will kind of guide us as we go through and then draw a few conclusions for us. So the questions we're at, we'll ask are simple ones. They're just this. We'll say, which gospel advances? We'll ask, to whom does the gospel advance? And we'll ask, how does the gospel advance? Not particularly complex, um, but just ask this as we walk through. So let, let's start here. Which gospel advances? Look back at your copy of the scriptures. I'll read the first three verses of Acts 11 again as we ask, Which gospel advances? We say this. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now, I know you're here on the 4th of July and we're already talking about circumcision the first 10 minutes. You're like, what in the world is going on? So let me just define a couple of terms here and stick with me and we'll work through some of these things. You see the apostles and the brothers, right? They're Jewish Christians that are going out and they're hearing that the gospel had gone to Gentiles, that is, people who were not Jews, okay? And, and then you see Peter, who's like the, the lead apostle or one of the lead apostles who's taking the gospel out. And then there's this circumcision party. And who, who are they exactly? The circumcision party was a group of Jewish Christians who had understood their circumcision to be how they were really made right with God. So that they were, we think, really saved people. They were really Christians, really regenerate persons. But they'd had a mistaken identity at some point along the way that they were, they were thinking that their, their circumcision maybe was a deeper identity than who they were in Christ. Okay, and so, so those are the, the groups that we come to. And so the, the question being asked is which gospel advances? Because there's a gospel that goes to the unbelievers of here's how you're saved through Christ, but there's also a, a gospel that needs to go to these circumcised people, the circumcision party, to say, hey, here's who your where your deepest identity ought to lie. So what is this gospel that's going? Forward, but to believers and to unbelievers. And it's a simple message you'll find across the entire Bible that God saves sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stated differently, it is that there is divine grace for the undeserving. Yeah, I'm undeserving, yeah. I'm undeserving too. There's divine grace for the undeserving. That's, that's the gospel that we see going forward. You see it on the screens there, Acts 4, 11, and 12. Peter, in a previous speech, would explain it this way. He would say, this Jesus... Is the cornerstone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or over in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, we would read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel that's going forward. Divine grace for the undeserving, that God saves sinners through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now you ask, what does Peter's vision have to do with all of this? The, the sheep coming down, the animals, all of that business. it be simple in an explanation. There were animals that under the previous ethical code that God had given, were not to be touched or eaten or anything like that. And, and God is saying to Peter, hey, what was formerly unclean, you couldn't touch these, you weren't supposed to eat these, now you can. And by analogy, the gospel had previously been reserved for Jews. And now it's going out to Gentiles to the rest of the world. There was food that you weren't supposed to touch, animals you weren't supposed to kill and eat and all that, and now you can. And the gospel was previously for the Jews, and now it's for the whole world, for the Gentiles. That, that's the point of the, of the vision there. What's more interesting to me is why is the vision re-repeated in chapter 11 after it's just stated in chapter 10? And throughout the Bible, maybe you've, you've heard this before, when something's repeated, it's God's way of saying, this is really important. When you see something repeated, it's really important because in the book of Acts, we could have simply said, yeah, these guys got upset that Peter ate with the, circumcised, or with the uncircumcised people and he just told them about what happened in chapter 10. But he doesn't do that. Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, re-records the vision to give us a warning to say, look, guys, the error that was made by the circumcision party is an error that you could make as well. You see, they had mistaken where their deepest identity lied And that's an error that you can make as well. So I hope that you wouldn't make the exact same error. I hope that you're not idolizing circumcision like they were. That'd be weird. (laughs) But there are other ways that we do idolize things, that we do find our deepest identity in things we ought not. And we might call these faulty gospels, right? Wrong sources for our deepest identity. There, There are these all around us, right? There's, what we might call the moral society gospel, where we idolize getting the society back to a more moral place. This might be you, if if a failure to overturn Roe v. Wade raises your blood pressure more than 1.5 billion people without the gospel, maybe that's you. And I would encourage you to look back at Romans 10, 14, and 15 that says, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news out. That would be a great passage to to meditate on this week. Or maybe it's the the prosperity gospel. We idolize our prosperity. Let me just help you think about a scenario here. Maybe Tuesday when the markets reopen, if, if the bottom were to fall out of them and you just watch your portfolio tanking, would you see this as an opportunity to tell your coworkers as they're freaking out where your true security, where your true inheritance is found? Or would you be losing your mind as well? If that's you, maybe 1 Peter 1, 1.3 would be a great spot just to, to anchor yourself this week where we're told that we have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable is what Peter would say. Maybe that'd be a great passage for you to look at. What's another faulty gospel we think of? Well, there's, there's the spiritual performance gospel where we idolize our own spiritual performance And we might find it difficult to believe that God loves us, that he really loves us while we're angry at our kids or while you're fantasizing about a different spouse or while you're bitterly refusing forgiveness. Does God really love me at that moment? Maybe you've begun to idolize your own spiritual performance as the basis for God's love for you. And I just, I'd push you back to Titus 2, 11 and 12 that says the grace of God has appeared and brought salvation to all men and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and live a righteous life. It's the grace of God that brings salvation and it's also his grace that meets you when you are not being righteous and it makes you righteous. Titus 2, 11 and 12 may be a passage for you to sink your teeth into this week. You know, it's the 4th of July, we're here, and, and I, I love all the festivities that are here. I'm incredibly grateful for those who have given their lives to make freedoms available to us that we all enjoy today. Many of you in this congregation have served in our armed forces. Many in my family have. But we, we've gotta be honest and recognize that there's a, there's a patriotism false gospel that we could easily slip into where our deepest identity, our deepest loyalty is more to America than it is to Christ this might be us if if we see pro athletes kneeling for the anthem and that gives us more heartburn than our neighbors being on their way to hell then maybe we've slipped into that false gospel that our deepest identity lies somewhere it ought not pastor Eddie referenced Philippians 3 just a couple of minutes ago and I would just push you back to that passage Because our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior that will transform our lowly bodies. (laughs) That's where the Savior is. He's the one I'm waiting for. That's where my best citizenship, my best passport is. Amen? Guys, there's all kinds of faulty Gospels out there, and we need the true gospel to advance the gospel of the of jesus christ of divine grace for the undeserving that god saves sinners through the person and work of jesus christ this is the message we proclaim to unbelievers for the salvation of their souls but it's also the message we proclaim to believers and to ourselves because it's the only message that can melt away our idolatry of other false gospels which gospel advances the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There's divine grace for the undeserving. So, so, we might summarize all of that by saying this: the Gospel Advancing Church prioritizes gospel doctrine. You've got to get the doctrine right. That it's it's always and only about Jesus. The Gospel Advancing Church prioritizes gospel doctrine. This leads us then into our second, excuse me, our second question: to whom does the Gospel advance? To Whom does the gospel advance? Look back at your copy of the scriptures, Acts 11. I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. And we read, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. To whom does the gospel advance? Well, We start in verse 18 by seeing an ethnic expansion of the gospel. And I already explained this, but this is sort of the point of Peter's vision, that the gospel is expanding ethnically. But But there's a broader point to see here. If we're in Acts right here, I'm kind of seeing a timeline of the whole Bible, Acts here, if we were to scroll all the way back to the very beginning, and you get back to Genesis 12, we see a fulfillment in Acts 11 of what was promised back in Genesis 12. God would promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I think we see it on the screen here, that God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there's a blessing that's promised to all families of the earth. And now that the gospel is expanding to all ethnicities, we're saying, hey, we've been waiting for that promise to be fulfilled and now it's coming to fruition, praise God. That took 4,000 years for that to happen so if, God is not, if you're not seeing all the promises of God realized in your life the way you hope they will be, take heart, sometimes it takes a little while, but God always keeps his promises. Amen? And so what we see here is as God's plan of redemption unfolds, certain elements move from command to tradition. And for the people in our passage today, it was circumcision. It had previously been commanded, and it was now tradition. And the religious leaders of the day Unfortunately, we're unwilling to let tradition be tradition. You see, tradition is challenged when the gospel expands ethnically. and so often reveal a culture within a particular church that's more shaped by tradition than it is by the gospel. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 11 with me. And listen carefully for the objection raised. That's what I want to point your uh, eyes towards. They say, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Why were they upset? They weren't upset that the gospel went to other guys. They just said, you can't eat with them. They're not really one of us. I'm glad they got saved. I'm glad the gospel went. But Peter, you can't eat with them, buddy. They're they're kind of us, but not really us. Right? We'll say more about how that teases itself out in a second, but not only do we see an ethnic expansion, we also see a geographic expansion of the gospel. Now, look back at verse 19 here. We'll continue reading. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, you start listing out all these different locations and most of us have a hard time figuring out how to get you know, around 465, much less where all these other places are. So let's, let's get a map up there and start to see where we're at. The first city you see is Joppa uh, Highlight. That's where Peter's at when he has the vision, just helping us get our bearings a little bit, okay? Now, the next place I wanna point out is Judea. That's, that's the region Jerusalem is just to the north. It's like Indianapolis is in Indiana. Jerusalem is part of Judea, a little bit like that. Phoenicia then is to the north a little bit. And this is the first place we see a geographic expansion of the gospel. And when you hear Phoenicia, I just want you to hear people on the other side of the tracks. That's kind of the idea that we're hearing. You see two coastal cities there on the west coast, Sidon and Tyre, known for their rampant immorality. Okay? To get from Judea at the south to Phoenicia to the north, you have to go through Samaria, which was basically considered to be full of a bunch of inbreds crass way of saying it, but that's the way they were seen and hated at the time. And so if anybody's from Phoenicia, they're just from the other side of the tracks, would be how that was understood in the first century, okay? Now, there's other places the gospel expands to, so let's zoom out the map a little bit, and you see down where that arrow is. That's where we were just talking. That's where Joppa, Judea, Phoenicia, all that is. The next place the gospel expands to is Cyprus, a Cyprus, you see, there's this island composed of seafaring people. I, I learned this week, if you're from Cyprus, you're called a Cypriot. Did anybody know that already? Several of you did. I'm impressed, Mrs. Campbell. Well done. I didn't know that until this week. There, you're a, a Cypriot. Um, so the, the Cypriots were this seafaring people. And look, I don't know a ton of seafaring people myself. I've known a couple, and I would just, with all the kindness in my heart, say, they're just kind of odd birds, they're not bad guys, they're not bad women, they're, they're just different. Right? And maybe you know something. It's like, yeah, they're, they're just a different kind of guy, different kind of girl. And that, and that's okay. But you've got in Phoenicia people on the other side of the tracks. In Cyprus, you've got these seafaring people, that are, they're just different. And then the third place the gospel expands to is Antioch. There you see up the coastal city. It's a massive, massive city in the Roman Empire, probably the third most important city. Where it's right at a critical trade route, and so when when you think of the gospel expanding to Antioch, you think of like an an urban snob a little bit. We're in this massive city, and we're better than you. and And so, so if you think about this in in more of a a first century or a twenty first century context it'd be like we're here for church and you have two dozen people from Kentucky walk in. That's the Phoenicians. And they're wearing like short cut-off jean shorts with a NASCAR tank top and American flag bandana. And they just come marching and you're like, this is interesting. And then, and then right behind, oh, Jackson, is that you? <laughs> You've even got the mullet to match. I love you, man. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, you have a bunch of Canadians walk in. And they were in their Maple Flag shirts, and they walk and they sit right next to them, right? And then you got a whole bunch of New Englanders walk in with their Tom Brady jerseys. And they all sit next to each other, and you're like, yeah, this just this doesn't feel right. Like, what's going on here, right? Do you see how when the gospel expands geographically, it challenges our traditions? It's like, oh, this just feels different. Right? I don't know what's going on here. And so there's a, there's a helpful question we can ask, whereas in the first question, which gospel advances, what's my deepest identity? Here we're saying, to whom does the gospel advance? What shapes our corporate deepest identity? Right? You see, the true gospel goes out and it saves people, but it also must create a gospel culture where the outsider is warmly welcomed, For people who look different than us, who think different than us, who behave different than us, are warmly welcome. Gospel doctrine must create gospel culture. And this idea, the gospel culture, that there's a warm welcome for outsiders, is critical for us existing as a gospel-advancing church. Or if you'd like to know more about that, I would just push you to this little book here by Rosaria Butterfield called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria was a, an activist in the LGBTQ community. Uh, she led a, a lesbian lifestyle, and she was welcomed. There was a gospel culture she found in Syracuse, New York, where she was welcomed in and actually came to faith in Christ through being welcomed in a way that she didn't think religious people would. If you want to read it, it's also great on audiobook. You can listen to it there. I would highly recommend to see how does a gospel culture p- play a critical role in being a gospel-advancing church. You'd see it there. You know, we've kind of joked about ways that the uh, the first century would be maybe opposing various traditions, and we, we've laughed about it in the 21st century as well, but I think there's more here for us to think about. You know, growing up, I would have wondered, can I be a Christian and play cards? Can I be a Christian and go to the movies? Or if there's a Christian who plays cards and goes to the movies, can we really welcome them in? And like, yeah, maybe we've moved on from those things in some ways. But we also ask, I think, different questions that still requires to say what shapes our deepest identity. Things like, could I warmly welcome, welcome a Christian who drinks beer and is all tatted up? Can I warmly welcome them? Can I warmly welcome a Christian who fights more for immigration reform than for abolishing abortion? Can I warmly welcome that Christian? Or can I warmly welcome a Christian who thinks differently about choices for their kids? Whether that be how they think about vaccines or educational choices or how they discipline them. Like, can I warmly welcome that Christian? See, there's all kinds of ways where our corporate identity can be shaped by something besides the gospel. And I want to exercise a lot of care in this because there are different levels of acceptance, but genuine care and a warm welcome are not optional. They're just not you see, sometimes we might say, I'm going to warmly welcome this brother or sister into membership at Parkside. That might be what the, the level of acceptance looks like. Or, or maybe you say, hey, I'm going to warmly welcome this brother or this sister, and we're going to have a meal at my house, and we're going to hang out, we're going to have a great time, but I'm going to say, you know what, I think where your convictions are at, there's another gospel preaching church down the road that I can help you get connected to. And that might be a better fit, right? We recognize that as well. And then there's other times where I'm gonna warmly welcome this this brother, this sister in and say, man, the more we talk, what you're saying to me seems incompatible with being a Christian. Can you help me understand how you see that differently? But the only way we get to any of that is through a gospel culture that warmly welcomes the outsider. All right, we said that gospel doctrine is divine grace for the undeserving and a gospel culture is a community all of us together, that's warmly welcoming others. A gospel culture also frees you for transparent honesty about your sins because you understand that those sins have been covered by Christ and I no longer need the justification of my friends. I can take the mask off. A gospel culture embodies Romans twelve ten. It says, outdo one another in showing honor, even when that other person absolutely drives you out of your tree. Now you're thinking of somebody right now. Romans 12, 10 is a good verse. They're all good, that one especially. A gospel culture allows the gospel to shape our deepest identity such that even in really uncomfortable conversations, I can embody James 1.19 that says, let every person be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear. I think I got that backwards, but you know the point of it. Look back at Acts eleven eighteen with me. There's good news for us. We start out where there's not a gospel culture. Like, Peter, you can't even eat with these dudes. But look what happens at the end. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they just listened. They fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Their culture was transformed by the gospel. They said, I'm gonna listen to what God has to say, and I'm gonna respond in faith and obedience. See, guys, To whom does the gospel expand and extend, and who does it advance to? Well, it advances to all people in all places, and true gospel doctrine necessarily creates a gospel culture. So, the first two points then you just summarize is this gospel doctrine plus gospel culture, which leads us to our our third question we're asking as we move through Acts 11 how does the gospel advance? How does the gospel advance? Look back at Acts 11, verse 21, we read, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number believed. And then down in verse 24, the the last sentence of verse 24, and a great many were added to the Lord. So the gospel clearly advances. There's a great many that are added to the Lord. But the question, of course, is how? How did this take place, right? Well, verse five, at the very beginning, we find Peter praying. And it doesn't appear to be any kind of like a particularly special time of prayer, just a normal daily. I pray, I ask the Lord for guidance, that he would show me where I'm in sin and that I would respond in faith and repent of my sins and follow him and see opportunities. And and as he's praying, God reorients his vision. How does the gospel advance? Through your prayers. right? Jesus in Matthew 9 would say that the fields are white unto harvest, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. Friend, I ask, if you think back on your life in the last seven days, have you earnestly prayed to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers? Have you earnestly prayed that he would send missionaries to unreached people groups? And have you earnestly prayed that he would send you to your neighbors? We always hear that Matthew 9 passage in the context of like a missions conference or something, right? Like, Hey, you're the laborers. Earnestly pray that God would send you out and the person in your Sunday school class out and your grandpa out and your grandson out. Earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest. Verse 18, look back there. Again, we spent a lot of time in that passage. The last section says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who's the one that grants repentance? God's the one that grants repentance so pray that earnestly the Lord would send out laborers, but pray also earnestly that God would grant repentance to the people that you are trying to reach with the gospel. <laughs> this is such a great example here. Like, people want to contrast like, well, if God is sovereign, then we're not responsible. Like, no, just read your Bible. Do both. Pray earnestly that God would send out laborers and pray earnestly that God would grant repentance. That's how the gospel goes forward. How else does the gospel advance? Verse 19 we read, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, pause, the gospel advanced through the persecution of Stephen. And we talked about that like a month ago when I was preaching through Acts 6 and 7. You remember that? We said that the persecution, the stoning of Stephen would not accomplish its intended purpose. Paul, Saul is trying to prevent the spread of the gospel and through the suffering of Stephen, the spread of the gospel was not prevented it was actually promoted what Saul tried to snuff out he actually ended up sending out and this is a theme you see all over the scriptures right you go back to the life of Joseph what his brothers meant for evil God meant for good when Satan thought he'd achieved the ultimate victory at the cross of Calvary in killing Jesus he actually enabled salvation suffering is how the gospel advances you can't hardly read any missionary biography without seeing how the suffering of God's people is used by him to send out the gospel. And I know this feels counterintuitive. And it's not just a, a now thing. It felt counterintuitive in the first century because listen to listen how Paul would talk about this in Philippians 1. This is, this is amazing to me. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do <laughs> you hear what he said? Like, I know it seems impossible. I know you think I'm lying. Guys, it really has served to advance the gospel. Like it, I've not lost my mind. It's not crazy. It is really has accomplished that. We keep reading. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that the exact opposite of what you would think? Like, your pastor gets thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and everybody's like, ooh, we better back off. He's like, no, that's a, the exact opposite happened. They're like, wait, you mean Jesus is worth it? The people need to hear? Then I'm going to be more bold too, and I'm going to go tell somebody. And the thing that you think would stop the spread of the gospel actually encourages and catalyzes it. Yes, i, I got to be honest here. I'm uh, I'm not somebody up here praying that God will send me a bunch of suffering and a terrible life. I'm not suggesting you should ask for that either. I'm suggesting that we should pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out labors and he would grant repentance. And as suffering comes into our lives, we should ask the Lord for a reoriented vision to see it as a divine opportunity for the gospel to advance rather than seeing, God, why are you doing this? Please end it. You hear how that, that transformation of vision is supposed to happen there when we just open the scriptures and see what God says to us. The gospel advances through prayer, advances through suffering, it also advances through preaching. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It's interesting to me that when we think of preaching is how the gospel advances. We often think of a context like this one, right? Gathered assembly of the church, pastor stands with a microphone behind a pulpit, and he preaches. I don't think that's what's in view here in verse 20. Let's read the verse again, and I'm gonna read it slowly and try and help you to see that. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. What did they do to the Hellenists, to the Greeks? They spoke to them. They talked to them. They got to know them. They met them for a play date at the park. They saw them at Kroger. They went to the Colts game and proclaimed Jesus as they went. So certainly across the New Testament, you'll see Peter and Paul and others gathering in the synagogues, reasoning from the scriptures, like absolutely that's there. Like I'm not saying either or, don't, don't, don't mishear that. But frequently we'll read and they preach the gospel like, man, I'm glad I got a pastor for that. Like no, that's not what it's talking about. It's like they went to the Hellenists, they spoke to them and proclaimed Christ as they were getting to know these people. This is how the gospel goes forward. And what, what I think is, is part of the problem here for us, the reason we don't do this, is we're not fully delighting in the gospel and so it doesn't overflow in our conversations. Right? Like, I, you, you guys hear me. You, like, you know I can't stop talking about my kids because I just delight in them. I love them. Right? You go to a great restaurant, and the restaurant is really delicious, but it's like you haven't really completed the joy until you've told somebody about it. Well, let me go text a couple guys. Like, th- this is part of the allure of social media, right? Oh, well, this great thing happened. I've not completely enjoyed it until I've told others. And so there's an aspect of proclaiming the gospel that, You are losing joy in Christ by failing to proclaim it. It's not like, man, you've got to tell people about Jesus. Get out and go. Like, no, no, no. Like, there's joy I want you to have. And you're missing out on it. C.S. Lewis would would say this in his own more eloquent way, but, but it's a similar thought. He'd say, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And when something is so good, so enjoyable, so delightful, what do we want to do? We want to go out and tell. And when I tell, I actually receive joy of being able to share. The gospel continues to advance beyond the proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers. But you remember when, uh, when Bernie read... Barnabas shows up and he starts preaching and teaching discipling people sending them back out on mission he realizes there's so many people getting saved he's got to go track down Saul like yo Saul get over here man there's like a ton of gospel advance happening we got to disciple these guys and send them out again like this is how the gospel advances through prayer through suffering through preaching and teaching fourthly at the very end the gospel advances through financial partnership through financial partnership right so this Prophets come down, Agabus tells them about this uh, upcoming famine, and you know, it's, it's interesting you hear that. There are people that try to discredit the Bible, and like, this isn't, didn't really happen like the Bible says it did. It's not actually a trustworthy document. It's not really written by God. There's famine here, and it says in the days of Claudius. Other historical records outside the Bible tell us of Claudius' first 11 years in office, five of them were marked by severe famine. It's just a simple little thing like, man, you can try to refute the Bible and tell me it's not the word of God and it doesn't hold any historical accuracy and it's not really recording truth. It is, it is, over and over. Challenge, response, challenge, response. We see this bearing itself out over and over. And there's a great need. And what do the brothers decide to do? I love the way Acts 11 describes it. They just said, hey, each of us, according to our own ability, we're gonna give whatever we can and we're gonna send it and we're gonna trust those elders to administer this need or this, this money to help meet the need. They're not saying like, hey, you have to give this much. You're a, you're a bad Christian if you won't give. They just look around and say, like, like, there's a need. We all have different abilities. Let's just do whatever we can to help. And let's send it out. And it, it helps the Christians who are in need, and it helps them meet other needs in their area. This is one of God's appointed ways for the gospel to go forward through financial partnership, so that we can we could proclaim the gospel here in our area, but let's have a broader vision for the kingdom of God than just Brownsburg, amen? Let's try that again. Let's have a broader vision for the kingdom of God than just Brownsburg, amen? Yeah, yeah. and this is one of the ways we do it. We pray, we see suffering as an opportunity for the gospel to advance, we preach and teach as we go, and we financially partner to see the gospel advance. So, you could sum it all up, and you'll see it on the screen here saying, gospel doctrine plus a gospel culture plus a gospel mission equals a gospel advancing church. Can I just invite you this morning to do a little bit of a spiritual assessment? Say, if our church was filled with spiritual clones of you, would we be a gospel advancing church? If you lose gospel doctrines, leave that slide up there for a moment. If you lose the gospel doctrine, there's no message to advance. You stand condemned before God facing an eternity in hell because your deepest identity is in your morality or in your sexuality or in your kids or anything else. You can't lose that. You lose a gospel culture and you might have beautiful truths about God to proclaim, but your own ugly life hinders the message. You're slow to welcome those who don't look like you, think like you, or act like you. And a church's deepest identity is found in religious traditions or cultural traditions rather than the gospel itself. You lose the gospel mission, and you might love Jesus and love each other, just not enough to tell anybody. The unbelievers in your life, they never hear the message of the gospel. And the full enjoyment of the gospel for yourself is never realized. So you've got to have all three. And, and maybe as I walk through that, you sense some weakness there. I mean, I, I tell you, it's, it's easier for me to talk about the cults and the weather and Fourth of July than it is doctrine. And it's a lot easier for me to, peop, to welcome people that look like me and think like me than it is people that just totally grind my gears. Can I just confess, like, that that's hard for me. Maybe it is for you too. And it's difficult for me to to lean into a life of gospel mission because there's just other things that just seem to be easier to talk about and other things that take my time away besides praying and other things I'd rather spend my money on. Maybe you're a bit like that. And and if you are, could I I just finish today with like five minutes of encouragement? (laughs) Would that be okay if we did that? Like, let's just wrap up. Let's just have some encouragement from the gospel for like five minutes as we wrap up and think about these things. You remember at the very beginning, we were talking about trampolines, right? To go deeper into the trampoline is how I get launched higher up. And maybe as you do your spiritual assessment, you're like, Justin, I feel more like a two-sheeter than I do somebody being launched up by the gospel. Then let's remember what we do about it. We go deeper into the gospel rather than beating ourselves up with guilt the only message that can truly transform our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you're unsure of this bit about gospel doctrine. You say, is Jesus really the only way that I can be right with God? Maybe you're a little bit like Mumford and Sons and you say, I'm a kind of a hopeless wanderer, a spiritual hopeless wanderer perhaps. And let me just tell you, friend, Jesus came to earth to die for you and to forgive you of your sins and to make you right with God. That is wonderful news. Because no other religion offers a God, no other philosophy offers a solution where God will become like you and die for you. Right, what were Buddha's final words? Keep striving. What were Jesus' final words? It is finished. Muhammad says change your name, Jesus says I'll change your heart. Secularism demands endless work to liberate the oppressed, however that's defined. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not endless work. I came to liberate you from your true oppression to sin and to set you free in me. You see, ultimately, we're not gonna be able to strive like Buddha wants us to, and we're gonna recognize that a changed name that Muhammad demands actually isn't that great because we actually do need a changed heart. And we're gonna recognize that I can try to end oppression in all sorts of ways, but the work is endless and I can never quite get it done. I need somebody who could get that done. Friend, Jesus came to die for you, to make you right with God. I hope that you will cry out to him this morning, that he would forgive your sins and make you right with him. And I'll be hanging around after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. But maybe you're saying, no, Justin, that's not me. I'm actually more unsure of this whole gospel culture piece. Can I really offer a warm welcome to people who are so different? Like, you don't." I'm Hoosier born and bred, Justin. I don't know if I can really welcome those people. Can I just tell you, we go back to the gospel, what did Jesus do? He welcomed people who were physically and spiritually smelly and diseased. He welcomed the worst sinners of his day. And maybe you're the one who feels like a bad sinner this morning because you said, man, I stink at welcoming people that don't look like me. Can I just tell you, he's standing right now with open arms to welcome you in, even as you are unlovely right now. And it's only as you experience the astonishing love of God in Christ that you can extend that kind of astonishing love to someone else. It's when you experience his kindness that leads you to repentance that you can extend gospel kindness to others that need to do some repenting. It's his kindness, his open arms, that allow you to have open arms. Maybe when we go to communion in a few minutes, that's what you need to meditate on. Maybe you say, Justin, that's not me. I, I can welcome people. I'm good at that. I'm, it's easy for me to, to, to do that aspect. But man, gospel mission is the part that I'm uncertain of. Can I really, can I really, after all these years of not telling my neighbor about Jesus, 25 years in, can I really go tell them that message? Can I really engage in gospel mission in that way? Let me just remind you again, the person and the work of Jesus. He came not just to welcome people, but he came to save people, right? He promised, John 20, 21, even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So all of you, if you're in Christ, you are already sent. The question isn't if you're sent, it's where you're sent and to whom you are sent, And as I start to feel overwhelmed by that, I remember then Matthew 28, before Jesus was ascended, he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and even so I am with you. So don't jump off the trampoline and say, man, I gotta do this on my own. No, get on the trampoline. Go deeper into the reality that Jesus Christ is with you today as that conversation feels scary and impossible, and I don't know how I'm gonna strike up a conversation or a friendship. He is with you. He will carry you. You'd better not try it in your own strength. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture plus gospel mission equals a gospel advancing church. May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to offer your life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins to make us right with God To create not just new Christians, but a new community, a new people joined together with an identity found not in any traditions or religious anything, but in you. And not only have you brought us together, but then you've also sent us back out. God, as we seek to be a gospel advancing church, as we seek to be gospel advancing people, I pray that you would give us the grace to see how the gospel transforms our lives. Help us not to try to foolishly do this on our own, but to see the strength in your name, the transformation in your name, and all the glory that would come back to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.